John chapter 21, we are in, we are in uh, week 92 of a 93-week sermon. So that'll kind of tell you how much more we've got in John. And so we will finish it up next week. And that is right. We have been in John for, uh, it will be at the end, 93 sermons in the book of John. And so a great story, um, probably one of them, one, one story that many of you are familiar with. And so we're going to start in the 15th verse. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying these, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me, let's pray. Father, again, we come to you with thanksgiving on our hearts and upon our mouths and in our minds for your word. For in it is your revelation. You have revealed yourself to us through creation. You've revealed yourself to us in the coming of your son who is God, and then you have preserved by the inspiration of your spirit, you preserved who he is and your character, your nature and how you work and his precious gospel. You preserved it in your word, Lord. What we know of you, we know through your word. Thank you for this revelation that we hold. Thank you for the spirit who has inspired it. Thank you for the men who have faithfully written it. Thank you for the spirit who has superintended it over the centuries so that we can hold it in our laps and we can believe it with all faith that isn't a blind faith, but it's a faith that's being evidenced by archaeology that this is the very word of God, that your hand is upon it. Thank you, Lord. Lord, may we submit ourselves to it. May we submit ourselves to every word of it. And Jesus, by the power of your of your spirit this morning through the proclamation of it. Would you draw people to yourselves, Lord? Lord, may we sit here with our hearts laid bare like Simon Peter's was on this seashore. May we hear the same question that you asked Simon. May we hear it for ourselves. Do we love you? May we take an honest, may we be honest in our hearts as we evaluate our own hearts and our own desires and our own affections and our own loves. Be near us in this time, Lord. May we find hope in your word today. May it not just lead us down a path of of self-condemnation because we know that we don't love you enough, but may we have hope in it that the gospel speaks change to us. And may you speak change to us even this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. So what we said uh, last week um, is that um, the 21st chapter of the book of John, if we could give it a theme in one word, it's the, it's the word of restoration. 
That's what's happening here. Jesus is, is restoring. He's restoring his disciples. There's about six of them gathered together on this seashore, or, or I'm sorry, seven, Simon plus six others. And he's restoring them. He's restoring them in two ways. He's restoring them to his mission that we are saved and we're sent. He calls us, Jesus calls us to himself and then he calls us out into the world. And so he restores them to the mission and he also restores them to fellowship with himself. The disciples have failed Jesus. The focus here in this text is on Simon Peter and Peter's failure was the most pronounced failure in the text. It was the most pronounced or in the, in probably the gospel accounts, probably the most pronounced of all the disciples outside of Judas is Peter's failure. It's the most uh, pronounced because Peter is the most outspoken. He's the kind of outspoken leader. You see that through all four gospel accounts. Whenever a question was asked, it's usually Peter's the first to answer. He doesn't always answer correctly. There's a time whenever uh, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And Simon gives a great confession of faith. You are Christ, the son of God. You know, that's who you are. And Jesus says, that's great, Simon, you got that right. And flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my spirit has revealed this to you. And then moments later, Peter says something else, very foolish about Jesus's death. And then Jesus looks Peter in the eyes and says, get behind me, Satan. So he goes from someone who can make a spirit-filled, spirit-revealed uh, a, a confession of faith to someone who's evidently being used of Satan. Whenever Jesus prophesies that all of the disciples will abandon him, it's Peter's the one that says, I would never do that, Lord. I'll lay down my life for you. That was in John 18. And even whenever they come to arrest Jesus on the night in the garden, Jesus uh, the, the, the high priest guard that come to arrest him, it's Peter who pulls out a sword, pulls out a small knife probably and, and cuts off the high priest guard's ear, a man by the name of Malachus. And it's Jesus who, who heals it. And Jesus tells Peter, Peter, put away your sword. That's not how the kingdom of God is gonna be advanced. And then Jesus will be arrested and he'll be carried off. And hours later from that, which appears to be great bravery of Peter cutting off this guy's ear, gonna guard and protect Jesus. And then Peter denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. He denies Peter. I mean, he denies Jesus. He even denies him to a little girl. Many of us, we can connect with Simon Peter, can we not? Not just because many of us have chronic foot and mouth disease, but because many of us, maybe you have failed Jesus or feel like you've failed Jesus. Maybe you haven't um, been to church in a while and you've stumbled in here this morning or come this morning. Maybe this is the first time you've ever attended church regularly. Maybe you don't exactly have your act together. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're quietly thinking to yourself, you know what, I love Jesus, I really do. But I wish I was a stronger Christian, stronger in my faith, stronger in my, uh, in my knowledge of him, stronger in my fellowship with him, stronger in my prayer life. I wish I knew the Bible better and, and was stronger and more devoted to him. Maybe there was a time in your life and you could think about it when your love for Jesus was strong your commitment to Jesus was strong, but then life happened. Temptations seemed stronger. Demands of, of life were high. Love and commitment grows cold. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're looking around the room and you're thinking to yourself like, gosh, I could never be like the rest of these Christians. 
Like it looks like they've got their lives all together. They look like they've got their perfect little lives with their perfect little families, with their perfect little children, with their perfect little problems that they've got all solved and all figured out. Maybe you walk in here and it's as if there's a, there's a ladder, like, a, you know, you, you imagine like a ladder in the room and all of us are at the very top of the ladder and you're at the bottom of your ladder and you're thinking, how did they ever get up there, spiritually speaking? How did they get up there? How did they give their lives together? And what's worse than that, than their way up there and you're down here is that it seems as if the bottom rungs are missing off the ladder. Well, let me say this to you. Looks can be deceiving, amen. Those of you in the room that's got it all figured out and got your acts together, uh, will you please rise? And let me just say as well, as one of the pastors of this church, that this is what I get to do is I get to listen and hear people's problems. There isn't a single person in this room, pastors included, who got it all together. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text with the story isn't, hey man, get it all together. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is doing is, again, it's a revelation of God and it's a revelation of God's heart. What he's revealing here is what is Jesus's heart towards those who have failed him? And maybe that's what you need to ask yourself. Not how can I be like these people in here? The first question you should ask yourself is what is Jesus's heart? What is Jesus's attitude towards those who have failed him? That's what this passage teaches us. What this passage teaches us, the focus of the passage is this, that our failures have not put us beyond the reach of Jesus's restoring grace. That's what this text is about. That no one has failed him so greatly that they're beyond the reach of Jesus's restoring grace. And let's spend some time in the text. The setting of the text matters a ton. We talk about whenever we interpret the Bible that we need to, we need to leave the text in its context and the context matters here as it does with every text, but especially here in the, the place and the time and the events around it and where they're standing, it really matters for us in helping us to understand the text. I said this last week, Jesus and Peter and the rest of the disciples are standing on the, sea, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is important because uh, this account mirrors what we see in Luke 5 which had taken place uh, several years ago, about three years ago, when Jesus called Peter to follow him. It's on the same seashore that that occurred, that they're standing on now, the Sea of Galilee, beside probably the same boat. The same situation had occurred, and we covered this last week, that in Luke 5, they go out into a boat, and they fish all night, and they catch nothing, and then Jesus tells Peter, Peter, uh, try casting down your nets on the other side, and then there's a miraculous catch of fish that occurs. The same thing happened as we saw in the text last week. It's the same seashore, probably beside the same boat, the same situation, the same people, the same command, the same outcome, but now there's been a new piece introduced into the setting. A new piece has come in and we see that in verse number nine. That wasn't in Luke five. It wasn't in the early account, but there's a new setting and it's in verse number nine. We didn't read it, but I want you to look at it with me is that it says that Jesus has built a charcoal fire. Now what Jesus is teaching here is that all of you that have gas grills, you need to get rid of them and you need to be old school. Everything tests better on charcoal. That's what Jesus is teaching. No, that's not what he's teaching, although that may be true. But nevertheless, that's not what he's teaching. What Jesus is doing here is charcoal fire only appears one other time in the entire Bible, especially in the entire New Testament. 
A charcoal fire shows up in just a few pages ago, just a few days ago in John the 18th chapter. In the 18th verse, it says this, that now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. There it is, because it was cold. And they were standing there warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Jump down to verse number 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it. And he said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter, again, he denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. It was the third time that he had denied it. There's a connection between sense and memory, is there not? Like there are, um, probably in your life, there are scents that you can smell that will take you back into a moment. Am I right? Luann's mom, uh, she wore Jovan Musk perfume. And it doesn't matter um, where we are. When I smell that peculiar and unique smell, I remember her. I think about her. In fact, we, in our basement, we have a a memory box. And in that memory box, we have some of her things. Um, she's gone to be with Jesus now. And we have some of her things in there. And in there is a bottle of that Jovan Musk. And sometimes we'll spray it and remember. There's a, there's a connection, is there not? And whenever I, we, uh, those of you that have been to Haiti with me, that Haiti has a, again, a peculiar and a unique smell. It's not a smell that you'd want in a candle, although it's a, it's a precious smell to me. It's the smell of burning tires and sweat and heat. The heat there is like, you could smell the heat in the air. That's how hot it is. And whenever the plane breaks into the the atmosphere, into the air of Haiti, it's, I don't know how it, it fills the plane. And whenever it lands, you're standing there and you can't wait on the doors like, you know, to open. And then it really hits you. But, you know, like I said, you wouldn't want that scent in a candle, but it takes me back to a place that I love and to a people that I love and to a work that God did in my heart. The first time that I visited there, that there's a connection for us between the sense of smell and memories. And I think that is what Jesus is doing here with Peter in this charcoal fire. Jesus has brought Peter to the same place where Peter first left everything to follow after Jesus. And he's also brought him to the place, a warm charcoal fire where he denied Jesus. He brings them here and then Jesus asked Peter one question basically with one response, but he asked it three times. Peter, do you love me? Then he says to him in response to your love to me, then feed my sheep. Now, why does Peter, uh, or why does Jesus ask Peter three times? Well, I think it's because Peter denied Jesus three times. That's why. The repetition makes a point. The, the, the point I think that Jesus wants to underscore is his own forgiveness for every time that you deny me. There's forgiveness for that failure. Some su- would suggest that there's some wordplay um, involved in the text. And maybe there is. I, I don't really see that. But, but in, the, in the Greek, so that's how, um, for those of you that may not know, um, it's, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. Like none of the folks spoke English. Right, And so the King James Version isn't the original Bible. Like that's not the one that Paul wrote. That the New Testament was originally written, it was originally written in the Greek. And now for us in English, we've got one word that means love and that word is, is love, right? And we would say that, hey I, hey, I love you, right? And we would mean whatever there is to, for that, 
right? Like I would say to you, I love tacos and I love chicken wings and I love Clint Goins and I love Randall Gay and I love Luann Lawrence, but surely we could recognize that there's different ways in which I love tacos. My love for tacos is different than my love for Clint Goins and my love for Clint Goins is certainly very different or different than my love for Luann Lawrence, right? So we would understand that. Love means a multitude of things, but in the Greek, there's actually six different words, at least six different words that we would all translate love. And here in this text, there's two of those words are being used. It's the word uh, agape, which is a, a, a selfless kind of love. It's the love associated with parents. It's the purest form of love. There's agape being used, in, and then there's also phileo. And phileo means uh, brotherly love. So the city, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And so that's what it gets, that's where it comes from. It's a kind love, the love of friends. And what Jesus asked Peter the first two times is he asked him, do you agape me? And Peter responds with, I phileo you. So he says, "Do do you love me with a selfless kind of love, Peter? And Peter would answer and say, no, I love you like a brother. And he says, well, do you love me like a selfless? And he'd say, no, I love you like a brother. And you could see that, that maybe he's trying to get Peter to understand the degree of love. But then what happens in the third time is he says, do you phileo me? Do you love me like a brother? And Peter says, yes, I phileo you. And then Jesus is like, okay, then feed my sheep. And that really doesn't make any sense. If he was calling Peter using this exchange of love and words to a deeper kind of love, a deeper degree of love. And it doesn't make sense that Peter, that Jesus would just say, okay, then I'll settle for phileo love and you do the best that you can do. It probably isn't what he's getting at with this exchange of words because throughout the gospel of John, these words are used interchangeably. Furthermore, not to convolute the situation anymore, but when Peter and Jesus had this discussion, they probably didn't have it in the Greek. That the disciples and Jesus probably spoke Aramaic and not Greek. And in Aramaic, like English, there's only one word for love. I don't think the point is that Jesus is asking about the degree of Peter's love, but what he's asking about is the current state of his love. And that's important. He's asking Peter, how do you love me now? I think it was on Tuesday night. On Tuesday night, I was, um, had already gone to bed. I was enjoying cheese and crackers and grape Kool-Aid. I was watching the uh, Nationals beat the ever-loving life out of the Cardinals and was enjoying that with great level of degree for those of you that are Cardinal fans. And my wife, Luann, came into the room. She got ready for bed and she crawled into the bed and said, what are you watching? And I said, well, I'm watching the, the baseball game. She said, can I ask you a question? And I said, yes. And she said, uh, are you tired of me? And there's a lesson in there, right, for us men. There's a lesson I think is to be instant in season and out of season because you can believe me when I was watching that. I was thinking about how much dislike I have for Molina, the catcher of Cardinals. I was not thinking, I hope my wife comes in and we have the opportunity to have a deep and philosophical discussion about our current state of love. That was not what I was thinking, but nevertheless, that's what she wanted. That's what she needed. Evidently, there was a thought that she needed to, uh, for, to, for me to hear me to say something. And so I I muted, the, I muted the TV and I, I tried to tell her and explain to her my current state of love for her. I don't think it would have been all that comforting when Luann asked me, are you tired of me? If I would have said, 
Luann, you know, 29 years ago when we were 15 years old and we met at Camp Pleasant Baptist Church and I saw you and I was crazy for you and you were crazy that, I mean, crazy for me that you and I would, and I told you I loved you and I was all Twitter-pated and, and, and I, we wrote letters all the time. You remember those days, don't you? We got boxes of letters in our garage that we would write because we didn't have cell phones. We lived long distance and we didn't have text messages. We didn't have email. We wrote letters and folded them up in funky little ways and gave them to each other. Like it wouldn't have been all that comforting, although all that was true. But I said to Luann, Luann, you remember on May 13th, 1995, when we stood at Camp Pleasant Baptist Church and we spoke covenant to one another. We said, till death do us part. You remember that, don't you, girl? 24 plus years ago, I committed my love to you. Do you remember that? It probably wouldn't have been all that comforting. Probably wouldn't have been all that comforting if I even said to her, well, you remember Luann a few years ago when we were really struggling when our baby girl was in Haiti and man, it was just, things were tough and we were praying together every night and we were working on the paperwork together. Do you remember that time, how, how we loved each other well in the, in the face of that suffering? That probably still wouldn't have been all that comforting that what she wanted to know, what she needed to know is what is the current state of my love for her? And that's a good question for us. What is the current state of your love for Jesus? I think that is what he's asking Peter. Peter, forget, I know whenever you left everything on this same seashore three years ago and you, and you the same command, follow me. And you left it all and you followed after me, but a lot has changed and a lot has happened and you failed me since. What is your current state? What is your current state of your love for Jesus? And the same thing could be said for us that loving Jesus is at the heart of a relationship with him. That is what salvation brings to us. The salvation just doesn't mean that you, that you miss hell and you hit heaven. Salvation isn't just the forgiveness of sins, but salvation is a restored and right fellowship and relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is about. It's not just that someday you're gonna to go to heaven and walk streets of gold and pearly gates and all those things that we believe in. We absolutely believe in those things because the Bible tells us, it describes them to us. It's not just that your sins are forgiven and you no longer are condemned and you can lay down your guilt that you have for your sins. Although all of those things are true, what you get in salvation is you get Jesus. You get a relationship and you get a fellowship with Jesus. And what Jesus requires from us and of us is a real, genuine love. That a love for Jesus, like any other selfless love though, any other love that isn't about us and doesn't have us in the center of it, any love that is not a self-interest love, that love must be cultivated. That love must be tended to. That love must be watched over. That love must be guarded. It must be stoked. It must be fanned into flame. And if it does not, it can and it will go out. And in fact, Jesus talks to Christians who have lost their love for him. We find it in the book of Revelation in the second chapter, starting in verses two through five. It's a letter that Jesus writes to a church. It's a church in Ephesus. And this is what he says. He says, I know the works I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. 
and found them to be false. Verse number three, I know you are enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my namesake and you've not grown weary, but number four, but verse number four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's not enough to do good works, church. It's not enough to love sound doctrine and to hate false doctrine. It's not enough just to hate your sin. It's not enough to patiently endure tribulations. You must possess a love for Jesus. You need to do those things, but do them from and as an overflow of your love for Jesus. What he's saying here, it's easy to do those things and not love me. And what's paramount in the Christian life is a love for him. And this leads us to a quandary, does it not? There was a, in the 80s, there was a a Christian musician before Christian music had K-Love or any of those things. I'd say he's one of the guys that kind of paved the way. A guy um, by the name of Keith Green. And one of my favorite Keith Green songs is a song that's where he's asked the question, what can be done for an old heart like mine? And maybe you're here this morning and you feel that. You would ask that question. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you recognize that your love for Christ has run cold. Maybe whenever you would speak of a love for Jesus, it would be past tense language. Maybe if I was to ask you when the best times that you've ever had with the Lord, you would describe those times and they would have occurred maybe when you were first saved or through a certain trial, but they were all in the past. Maybe there is in you, but just a spark, just an ember, just a flickering flame. And you wonder how can I take this ember and how can I produce a fire again out of this ember? I've never in, um, in all of my days, as a, especially as a preacher, I've never, I've, I've, I've never been brilliant. And so my goal in preaching is to never be brilliant because I'm just not there. Sometimes I may be clever. Most of the time it's because I'm a smart aleck. So maybe there's some cleverness there. And so sometimes I will try to be clever and I usually trip all over myself. But this much I want to be and desire to be with all of my heart as a pastor is to be practical. I wanna be practical. I wanna feed Jesus' sheep food that they can eat and food that fills us and feeds, fills you and sustains you. And so for the next few minutes, I want to give to you what I think that Jesus is, I'm gonna use the story, the narrative found, but I also want to draw attention from um, Revelation uh, chapter two, especially verse number five, as to try to give for you a, a way that you might be able to, if that's you this morning, if you evaluate in your own heart and you would, alongside me and Keith Green, you would say, what can be done for an old heart like mine? If you want to grow your love for Christ, if you want to return to your first love, how can you do that? A couple of things. First, let me say this, that your love for Jesus will never grow from just looking at the toughness of your own heart. But your love for Christ comes as you look at the tenderness of his. That's the point of the text. 
That's why the Holy, that's why the event takes place. That's why the Holy Spirit inspires it. That's why the Holy Spirit moves upon John to include it and to write it. That's why he writes this gospel. That's why he, the Holy Spirit is preserved over it. And now the Holy Spirit by his power is going to apply it as we sit and we study it. The point of the text isn't, look how great Peter has fallen. The point of the text is look how gracious Jesus is. That Jesus has time and he initiates fellowship and relationship with those whose love runs cold for those who fail him. And let me just give for you 10. Did you all see there's a, there's a, a, a video out of Dr. Moeller at Southern Seminary and he's preaching and he had preached for 45 minutes. And then he says, there are 10. He goes, now for some points, there are 10 of these. And there's a girl in the choir and her face is like, <laughs> like, well, like how your face was when I said there's 10 of these. There's 14 of these, no, four of these. There's four of these. And like I said, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take Revelation 2, 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And I also want to weave them in as we see Jesus interacting with Peter. The first one is this, remember. And what are we remembering? Well, you're remembering this. He says, therefore, from where you have fallen. But remember this, remember Jesus's great love and Jesus's great grace. That's what, I think that's what Jesus is doing with Peter. He's telling Peter, remember, remember on the seashore in Galilee, you were there, you were, you just finished casting your nets and then we went out on the boat and we came back and you're washing your nets. Do you remember that, Peter? And I told you, Peter, come and follow me and you left everything and you followed after me. Do you remember that? Do you remember Jesus's great grace coming to you and finding you? Peter wasn't sitting there washing his nets thinking, you know what? I wish there would be a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi show up and invite me in. He wasn't sitting there thinking, hey, you know what? I wish the son of God would show up and invite me into a relationship and invite me to be a disciple and follow him. Peter's just minding his own business and Jesus, out of his love and his grace, he comes under the sovereignty of God and he chooses Peter. He calls Peter to himself. Jesus, out of grace, comes and he finds Jesus. In fact, later on, Jesus will say to the disciples, hey, don't think you've chosen me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Now listen, there's a, a wide stream here. There's varying degrees of predestination and election that you and I can have uh, in, in the pews here. But this much we have to agree upon. That your salvation was not the product of your intellect or your will. Your salvation was the product of Jesus's grace and his grace alone. You didn't do anything to deserve his grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. He didn't choose you, certainly none of you in here, in the men, because you're so pretty or cute. He didn't choose you because of that. He didn't choose you because of your potential. He didn't choose you because of your morality. He didn't choose you for any of those reasons. Why did he choose you? To display his great grace in you. In the same way that he chose Peter. He, it wasn't a, a mystery to Jesus, Peter's character, or Peter's propensity to open his mouth. It wasn't a, a mystery to Jesus to know that Peter was gonna deny him three times, was gonna fail him. Those things weren't mysteries to Jesus. Jesus knew all of that. 
Why did he elect Peter and save Peter, call Peter to himself? Well, simply this, so that he could say, you see, Peter, gosh, what a mess up. And that's what I do. I, I love and I save mess ups like Peter. First is remember. What are we remembering? Well, don't just remember your love that you had at first, but what was it that sparked that love? Gosh, when I think of my own story in my own life, and I think of what a 15-year-old little, little punk that I was, and then I am. Well, now I'm a almost 45-year-old punk. But when I think about that, and I've got a, I've got a 15-year-old in my own house, and I just think about how frustrating 15-year-olds can be, right? Nothing any more arrogant and anything more ignorant than a teenage boy. Those of you that have them, can I get an amen or have been there? Do you remember those days? Too ignorant to know right from wrong, what to do, what to say. Too ignorant to know, but too arrogant to take any kind of help, take any kind of correction, any kind of instruction. I mean, I, dad, I know, dad, I know. That's what I said. Say, dad, I know, dad, I know, dad, I know. My dad, you know, always trying to teach me something. That's how I respond. Not that my children respond like that, but dad, I know. And in that time in my life, when ignorance and arrogance was a pinnacle, Jesus saved me. I heard the gospel being preached and he opened up my heart and put faith in my heart so that I can believe in him and come to know that. Don't just think about your love as it was in the first, but think about Jesus as a love and Jesus' grace that initiated your love and your grace. First is to remember, two is to repent. That's what it says in Revelation 2, 5. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, and then do this, do repent. And what do we mean by repent? Well, it's to renounce competing loves. Repentance is the act of returning to your first love, which is Jesus. That's what he's calling the church at Ephesus to do. That's what he's calling Peter to do, is to return to your first love. That repentance is not just feeling bad or feeling guilty for your mistakes and even for your sins. It's not just admitting that I've done something wrong or I've said some wrong things, I made mistakes. Listen, lost people can do that. Lost people can feel guilt for mistakes. Lost people can say, I'm sorry. Lost people can feel remorse. Lost people can say, hey, you know what? I'll try and I'll do better. That's not what Christian repentance is. Christian repentance is about forsaking all of our idols, which are loves that we allow to be ultimate loves, loves that we allow to be supreme loves. It's about renouncing all of those competing loves and placing our love on Jesus as our supreme love. It's confessing our love for Christ. Peter, uh, uh, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, we can't build a doctrine here because it's a little ambiguous as to what are the these. I'd love to know what Jesus pointed to whenever he said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Possibly what Peter points to is Peter's, I mean, possibly what Jesus points to is Jesus is pointing to those nets and to that boat and to the 153 fish that he just caught. Maybe he's asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than your vocation? Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than making a living? Are you willing to leave all of that and follow after me? Possibly what Jesus is doing in this moment is Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And maybe he's talking about the disciples. 
Do you, Peter, do you really love me more than all these other men say that they love me? Because that's what Peter said. Peter had already said, hey, they may follow. I mean, they may fail you, but I'll never fail you. I love you more than them. And that would reveal an idol of self-righteousness and comparison in Peter. And that's now been crushed. Peter responds with, Jesus, you know everything. Like, you know, I didn't do it. I think that's what he's saying. If that's what Jesus means by these. Peter's now been humbled. There's no more bragging. He's laid bare, totally helpless and in need of Jesus. And Jesus is calling Peter again to forsake everything and now follow after me. We remember, we repent. Number three, we return. Do the works you did at first, he says here. Every ember needs kindling. Now listen, I, I don't know that from practical experience because I've built a handful of fires. I was a Boy Scout. I know this because I've watched hours and hours and hours of survival shows on the Discovery Channel. You name the Discovery show, the, the survival show, uh, I have watched it. I, I love them and watch them. And I know this about survival. You can't just have kindling, you gotta have an ember, but you can't just have an ember, you need kindling. And the same thing is true if you wanna fan your heart into flame, into love for Jesus, you need an ember that he places and then you need kindling on top of that. And the kindling is the works that you do at first. It's Bible intake. It's reading the Bible and studying the Bible and meditating on the Bible and hearing the Bible. It's, it's praying, it's fasting, spending time in community with people. That's the kindling that you place upon your heart in order to fan it into flame. I don't, you, can't, you can't get there. You can't love Jesus without those things. Now you can do those things without loving Jesus, but I don't know that you can love Jesus without doing those things. Those are important. I don't know what your Christianity looked like in the beginning, but I know what mine looked like. It looked like nose in the book all the time. When I got saved, it was like, I want to read this Bible. It talks about Jesus and just read it. And some of you, maybe you're there now and maybe some of you have been there in the past. Number four is to respond. You return and then number four is to respond. It's care for the Savior's sheep. That as a demonstration of the repentance, Jesus calls Peter to do this, to feed my sheep. Listen, this isn't a call to vocational ministry in Peter's life. This is a call to discipleship. He's not calling Peter to be an apostle. He's already done that. He's not calling Peter Certainly, he's not calling Peter to be the first pope of the church. He's not calling Peter to be a pastor. What he's calling Peter to do is to simply be a disciple. That an intricate and necessary step of discipleship, follow me, that's discipleship. Jesus said, follow me, forsake everything else and follow after me. That's what being a disciple is about. It's about following Jesus, being a student of Jesus, being a learner of Jesus and an intricate necessary step of discipleship is the mutual spiritual care that we have for one another. Discipleship that just focuses on you will never lead you to a healthy love for Jesus. It will lead you to selfishness and narcissism and spiritual gluttony. It will not lead you to a healthy place in Jesus. And what Jesus does is he finds us and he puts us back on our feet, spiritually speaking. And you know what we do in return? 
we go and find others and we help them to meet Jesus and to know Jesus so that they can return on their feet. And we respond to Jesus's grace, not by just reading our Bibles, although that's important, not just by serving him, although that's important, but we respond to Jesus's grace by tending to his flock, tending to his sheep, our brothers and our sisters. This has church language written all over it. It's Jesus calling us to one another. He's calling us to himself and he's calling us to one another that you and I, even today, we can respond to Jesus's grace by, by teaching our children. You know, it's kind of used interchangeably, but I like how Jesus says, teach my sheep, care for my sheep. And then he says, tend to my little lambs. I can think of nothing more glorious, nothing more Christ honoring than teaching children the gospel. Scripture tells us to give honor to whom honor is due. And for those of you here in this room that serve in Kids Point week in and week out, most of you don't serve week in and week out. We give you a break, but most of you serve monthly on a monthly rotation and you, you study and you pray and you go back into a room and you try to keep some order in there and then you also try to teach our kids, to which my three are still a part of, try to teach them the gospel. Thank you. Those of you that use your talents and you use your gifts in order to feed Jesus' lambs, thank you. And I honor you. Thank you. Feed Jesus' sheep by practicing hospitality. Invite others in and make time for them, real time. Give others access to your home, to your apartment, to your life, to your duplex, wherever it is you live. Last week here at the Point Community Church, we had 11 first-time guests. 11. 11 folks, first time, visited this church in a gathering. And I just wonder if they left feeling cared for. That's what Jesus said, if you love me, then do this, care for, care for my sheep. Did they feel cared for? Did they feel included? Did they feel invited? Did they feel, well, what the declarations of the gospel are? Host a small group. That's a way that you can care for sheep. The rhythm of the Christian life is this, to love God and to love others with a real love, with a tangible love. The Christian life is a lifetime of weakness, of stumbling forward, of loving and caring for others, all mingled together and all blessed by Jesus. And we do this until we die. And when we die, we die a glorious death. That's what he says to Peter. We'll close with this, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John adds this editorial note. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was going to die in order to glorify Jesus. And after saying this, then Jesus said, follow me. One of my favorite uh, pastors, he writes this on this text from Ray Ortland. He says, your glorious death will not be an isolated moment of rare 
heroism. Your glorious death will be just another step in following Jesus after a lifetime of following Jesus. You don't have to be a dramatically amazing Christian. All you have to do is to love Jesus and care for other pathetic, weak, sheeply followers of Jesus. Keep on breathing and loving and serving and praying until you can't breathe, you can't serve, you can't love, you can't pray anymore. Can you think of any better way to live and to die? So don't waste any more time in self-hatred or self-loathing or in fruitless comparison or in your isolation or in your idolatry. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you should do. Love Jesus. Love Jesus and go and spend your life loving others in his name and let him carry you all the way to glory. Let's pray. Jesus, as I have said from, pul- from this pulpit many times, and I will say it again, you know our heart as elders of this church that we do not have to be the largest church. Not certainly in this world, not in this town, not anywhere. We don't have to be filled with the brightest folks, but may we be filled to overflowing with a real and tangible love for you that is expressed in our love for others. Lord, fill us with a love for you that this this area, this town cannot ignore. Fill us with a love for you that's tangible and palpable in the way that we love others. Stoke the fire of our love and may it brim over for you in how we care for one another and love one another and feed one another and tend to one another. Father, I pray for folks in this room like myself who this week as I've worked through this text, I've had the heavy burden. I felt what Peter felt when he said, I was grieved. Jesus, when I think about my current love for you, I'm grieved. There are some in this room that may feel grief like Peter and like I have. And I pray that our grief will will be shortly lived as we think about your great grace. Your love for us and your grace would ignite a love in our hearts that's stronger than our momentary grief that we may feel. But if we need to be grieved, may grief come, Lord. Jesus, as we remember your great grace here in the Lord's Supper, may it spark a love in our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.